Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, October 30th, 2012, and this is episode 1009 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, today we're going to cover permaculture from a different angle than maybe we've done before. I'm going to basically talk about the things that I've learned, the lessons I've learned, and the feedback I've gotten, and what it leads me to realize that we're not doing in the permaculture world when we're teaching people that are, let's say, uh, not fully indoctrinated, and some of our failures with people that are fully indoctrinated about actually understanding basic components, overall concepts, and things like that. Uh, it should be a good show. It should be a little bit of a, a lighthearted show, and that's good because I want to take a moment here to just say, if you're in the northeastern United States and you're dealing with the aftermath of Sandy, um, hopefully you were as prepared as you could be, but my heart, and I'm sure the heart of the entire community goes out to you, there are a few places where it didn't really matter how prepared a person was, that you know homes are destroyed, uh, flooded out, burned down from fires that have started and things like that. Dealing with a power outage or a couple down trees is one thing, um, but if your home's flooded, I mean, it's a totally different level. If it's burnt, uh, so I just hope that everybody that's out there, um, if you have neighbors that are, are kind of down and out because of this, uh, but you were maybe on a little higher ground or across the street from where a fire was or something, make sure you're stepping up. This is a time where preppers get to prove that what we do really matters, not just for us, but for our communities. And uh, anybody that's effective, again, my uh, my heart goes out to you, and I'm sure uh, the heart, the thoughts, the prayers of the entire community does as well. And I'm not going to say much more on Sandy because, as I put it to my wife this morning, I want to know about this, but after about one hour of news this morning while we drank coffee and sat on the couch, didn't anything else happen in the last 24 hours? So I'm sure you're going to get plenty of coverage. I'll leave it to the news people to give you coverage, and I'm going to go on with teaching you how to be prepared for whatever may come into our lives. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, something you can never be overly prepared for is uh, the horrible day that you may have to use lethal force. There's no such thing as being too prepared for that because I think it's more difficult than most people think that it is, and I think that there's more opportunity to fail uh, in an attempt to save your life or the lives of others than most people uh, think there is. And I think that there is a, a mental block that comes for most people with actually having to use lethal force, even when other lives are in danger. And I think it's only with really effective, high-level training, continuous training, that we have ourselves in a mental state that we're prepared to do what we must. Um, you know, I have a new saying out, every citizen a sentinel. When you put that firearm on and you get that concealed carry permit, you're truly being a sentinel then. And you need to be a good sentinel, uh, a good watchman over your fellow man, yourself, your family, your community. Fortress Defense Consultants can help you take your training to a high, higher level. Definitely consider getting some training from Frank Sharp Jr. and his professional cadre. And remember, if you can't get up to him, uh, he can come to you. Just put together a group. Five or six guys is usually a big enough group. Tell them what you want. They'll customize something for you. It's a great way to build community. Um, you know, Start talking today. There's a lot of guys out there. You guys go to the range together and all already. And a lot of times you don't think you need that training. Trust me, the training will make you better. 
It, it always has and it always will. Uh, next up today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Hey, we're going to talk about permaculture today. You want a, a crash course in real-world, hands-on, hard-skill-based permaculture? Get the Backyard Food Production DVD, Growing Your Groceries. It is just awesome. Uh, Marjorie Wallcraft takes you through the entire system they've set up to feed themselves, and they do feed themselves uh, to a hugely, hugely high percentage of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Uh, everything from rabbits to chickens to geese, fruit trees, uh, the whole system is outlined, water catchment. And even though it's a large-scale system, everything can be scaled to fit anywhere from a large farm to a backyard garden. Check it out today at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up, remember to check out TSPCopper.com for some really cool copper coins. Uh, remember, the prices there are per roll of 20, and there's some awesome stuff there at TSPCopper.com, including the official survival podcast copper medallions, um, Ron and Rand Paul, and some other really cool things like Second Amendment, Republic of Texas. Cool stuff, guys. Check it out. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support our show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders, active duty or prior service, please email me prior to joining, and I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service. Uh, those are the only categories. Occasionally I get an email from somebody that says, I'm like, I'm a teacher, do I qualify? No. And it's not that I don't respect the work you do. Uh, but if we're going to offer a service discount to people that are putting their lives in danger um, and you know working in that capacity, it has to mean something and the line has to be drawn somewhere. I have heard from people that say, I'm in law enforcement, but I work in a correctional institution as a guard. That would qualify. In fact, your life is probably more in danger than the average cop on the street and the service you provide is vital. And uh, if the prison systems ever fail, people will find out just how vital. I just wanted to kind of clear that up. Uh, again, service discount on the subject line. Email me. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. If you're prior service. And, guys, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, you guys are procedure guys. Don't join and then ask for the discount. The procedure is email, get a discount code, and then join. It's very difficult to fix it once you've kind of turned it on its head. We can do it at renewal. All right. With that, everything is wrapped up with the housekeeping. Let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, lessons uh, and observations on permaculture from 2012. And I want to start out real quick. For I get new listeners all the time, right? And you're like, I don't really have the frame of reference on this permaculture stuff. Uh, I haven't listened to past shows, so I want to get something out of the show. So I'm going to start out with, and I think it's necessary even for people that do have a frame of reference to really get what I'm going to talk about today. So what is permaculture? Um, permaculture is basically this and nothing more. A system of design to create sustainable culture. Okay? Let me say that again. A system of design to create sustainable a, a, a sustainable culture. In other words, a system designed so that you can make sure you produce enough, enough of what is necessary that we can continue. Permanent culture, got it? Uh, when Bill Mollison, who founded, originally coined the phrase permaculture, it was permanent agriculture, replacing the, 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 the slash and burn nature of modern agriculture, the chemical nature of modern agriculture, but it rapidly expanded to be something that would, could be used in the design of a business. I did an entire, in my business podcast, I did an entire eight part series on how permaculture could be used to design, run a business. I would say survival podcast is an example of a permaculture based business. So it's much bigger. We're going to talk about the agricultural components of it today though. But it's a system of design, which means much like 
There is a system for designing a building. But there's a lot of different materials that we could use to design a building. We can use glass. We can use concrete. We can use steel. We can use wood. You know, there's all different types of material. We can build a 100-story skyscraper or a one-story, you know, sprawling house. And every architect will make their own choices and own decisions about materials. They'll consider the zoning, the aspect, which way the house is facing, uh, what kind of street it's on. There's, uh, you know, what does the what does the client want? You know, what does the what does you know what does the community expect a building there to look like? And that's kind of back to the zoning, right? But all of these things, so that when you look at architecture, and you say somebody's an architect. You don't think to yourself, well, that means that they have to build a house a certain way. That means that they have all of the knowledge they need to be able to build a house to address the individual need. And that is where people get tripped up with permaculture. And it's why I wanted to start there because I get certain questions that we're, I'm not going to start with because we're going to go through them today. But they always lead back to that fundamental misunderstanding. So people watch a video and they watch the way that somebody does a backyard garden and it's a permaculture garden and there's 50 plants in one bed and they're all mixed together and that's a beautiful polyculture and there's a place for it. But then they say to themselves, well, how do you do that on a farm? And the answer is you don't quite do it that way on a farm. right? It's, it's again, it's, it's, it's looking at the system of design and understanding how plants support each other, how systems support each other, interoperability, interactivity, resource sharing, way deeper than I'm going to go today. But just understand that huge view. The other thing that we can't really discuss permaculture with without going back through, and I'm going to go through them quick today, but just to make sure they're there, is the prime directive and the three ethics. The prime directive is the overall guiding principle. Why the hell are we doing this and, and what is the intent? And the prime directive is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. Okay, Be responsible for yourself and your kids. Right? And that means that one day you're not going to be here and they are. So you need to leave the place behind as good or better than you found it. As much as permaculture gets labeled a hippie type movement, that is one of the most, um, I would call, you know, when you look at the political spectrum, most conservative statements I've ever heard of in my life. And I mean that in a very positive way. That's, you know, as a libertarian, I have conservative and liberal aspects of the way I view life. And when it comes to personal freaking responsibility for yourself and your community and your family, hell yes. And that's the guiding Principle. If it's not doing that, it's not permaculture. The next one is care of the earth. If we're screwing up the planet, it ain't permaculture. Now, there is room in there for people to decide what that means for themselves. So there's not a permaculture police that run around and go, oh, you're not permaculture because I think that the way you did that is interfering with the bacteria and the structure of your soil in such a way that I wouldn't do it. No, you tell that person to take their sniveling little ass back to their piece of property that they're managing and worry about it there. Okay, but there's certain things we can all agree on. If we look at coal mining, there's, you know, can we burn coal cleanly? I don't think so, but you could make a case for it, right? Now, but is it care of the earth to remove an entire mountaintop? No, it's not. Is it is the tar sands that they're doing in Alberta? Is that care of the earth where we're stripping down uh, an area the size of England, the boreal forest from that, and then strip mining, tar sand, and then supposedly replanting the forest after 
we've completely decimated it. No, we're not caring for the earth. Right? If if somebody dumps, you know, mercury onto a field, we so you get it, right? There's there's a place where people have to take that personal responsibility from the prime directive into their own lives, but there's a macro view, the huge view that we can go, no, that's 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 bad. Um, then the second one uh, of the the, uh, the three ethics is care of people. So we also have an obligation, though, to, to care for people. So there's even practices right now that I say aren't permaculture, but quitting them cold would also not be permaculture because the, we've built a system that people are dependent upon. So a lot of the things about factory farming I think are being done very, very wrong, and they're heading toward environmental catastrophe. But a true permaculturist wouldn't say, we're just going to stop all that crap right now. We're just going to stop it immediately and switch it over uh, wholesale because the systems aren't designed to do that. So there needs to be a transition period. And there's an entire part of the permaculture movement known as the transition movement, and that's part of it. And a lot of people in it are thinking it's a catastrophic thing that's going to happen, and then it'll transition. Uh, the proactive people, which I try to be more uh, a part of, are saying we're, we're going to transition at some point, so maybe we should start now. And, and things need to come over slowly. That's just one example of where there can be conflict that's resolved by the ethics. If it hurts people, it's not permaculture. If it's already hurting the earth and stopping it will hurt people, we need to figure out how to stop in a way that doesn't hurt people. Right? Uh, but if it hurts people, it harms individuals, it's not permaculture, right? So um, using eminent domain to take land from a family that's owned it for a long time and then turn it into a permaculture farm would not be permaculture because you've harmed people by stripping them of their property and their rights and their individual sovereignty. Got it? Okay, last one, return of surplus. I'm not even going to get into the hippie socialist nonsense brought in by David Holgram after his 25-year sabbatico uh, where he changed the word to redistribution. It's return. That's the original ethic. And what it means is that everything that you produce as a surplus should be reinvested to the goals of care of earth and care of people which includes plenty of room to make a profit if you're a farmer that wants to make a profit. But it also means, like, see, because the problem with this is that people hear surplus and everybody keys in on surplus being the good stuff. So if I have pigs and I get to the end of my cycle of raising pigs for meat and I have all that wonderful ham and bacon and all, that's a surplus. So is the bones, though, which can be ground into a fertilizer um, or used to produce other foodstuffs. What about all the pig manure, right? So there's a surplus there that's not exactly something people are happy about, but we need to be returning it back to whence it came. Another way this ethic has been phrased is fair share, which has gotten also been socialized and hippieized into the nonsensical, leaving the original tenant of the founder's intention, right? And that is, the, to, a fair share would be described this way. If I have an acre of ground, I can't put uh, 150 cattle on it. I can't. I'm asking for too much from the land. So a fair share is about making sure that each component of a system only takes as much as the entire system can tolerate. To not overdraw from the system to where it breaks down because that's when we start having to bring in artificial inputs. All right, so that's the basics of permaculture is as quickly as I can do it and it took about 10 minutes. And, and that's a pretty condensed thing to explain something this big but hopefully everybody understands it now 
uh, at least the basic common sense tenets of it and why it makes sense and why, for that matter, it's a survival topic. People say, why is this permaculture thing a survival topic? Well, um, creation of a permanent culture, a sustainable system that allows people to continue forward and take care of themselves and their children. I, I don't even understand how anybody asks the question if it's explained that way, but people do, so there you go. It's so that we can actually survive. So there's a tremendous number of things that we've talked about over the past four years with permaculture here. And now I'm going to break off this kind of broad view and get a little bit more narrowed down into some things and and talk about them individually. So I'll have to do a little catch-up for people that maybe haven't heard of them before uh, as we go. So those of you that know exactly what Hugel culture is, bear with me as I explain what it is. Hugel culture is a concept that's you know ancient, but it was made really, really popular by two people, at least in the United States, that I would give credit to. The first would be Sepp Holzer over in Austria with his farm on the Kermaterhof, who's built these huge Hugel beds which are basically a really high pile of earth with a 70 degree, 70 degree angle, generally about uh, six feet high, uh, five and a half to six and a half feet high in general. And the core is made up of a bunch of wood. And then the humus and soil are built up on them, and into these beds are planted a variety of perennial and annual agriculture mixed together. And Holzer doesn't do any irrigation on his farm. And I, I don't know that I actually agree with that based on what I've seen of his farm and all of the water that he's holding back and the way that he can move the water around. And I would think that maybe at certain places and certain times he might use a little bit. But basically, these hugel beds manage themselves. The other individual that gets us a massive amount of credit because, you know, the, the first videos that show hugel culture on Holzer's farm are over like 15, 20 years old. They're very, very old videos. I have copies of them. I watched them and I never really picked up because he doesn't explain what the hell's inside there in the videos. But Paul Wheaton worked with uh, Seb Holzer, Paul Wheaton of Permies.com, and basically brought the concept to America. Now, something happened when it got here. People looked at this and went, six-foot-high beds, hey? Eh? I'm uh, not going to work in my backyard, not going to work in my front yard, not going to work here, not going to work there, but I can bury wood. So with a lot of skepticism in this in this uh, marketplace, and it, zero for me, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, that makes sense. People started burying wood, and I think we should just call them woody beds in the United States. Because hugel bed actually means high bed. That's Hugel is height, right? So it's a high bed. So when you got a six-foot bed, that's a high bed. When you have a little bitty, like, two-foot bed, it's not a high bed. When you dig down into the ground and basically put the wood under the, the surface of, the, of, the, of the, the soil and build up a typical you know backyard raised bed or just simply a bed in the ground, but the wood's underneath there, it's not a high bed. It doesn't really fit the definition. We talked about this, and I asked the audience for ideas, and some of you guys got really creative with Latinaic names and stuff like that and all. And the problem is the whole reason I want to change it from Hugo culture is twofold. Um, one, it ain't hugel culture, because I know what real hugel culture looks like now. I went out and saw a hugel culture project, and it is massive and an amazing uh, feat. And I think we can do a lot of farming in this country using it. I think there's a huge application for it on large scale. But I don't think it's going to happen in most people's you know, backyard. I don't think it's going to happen on properties uh, a lot. Some people will do it. I would do it. But I don't think it's going to happen a lot on properties uh, that are in the neighborhood of you know four to ten acres. 
I really don't. It, it, there's no reason it can't. I just think that most people in that small acreage setting are going to want these big uh, mounts, even though I think when they're done, they look beautiful. It, it's amazing what they look like once they're in place, but I think there's a mental block there, and then there's a logistical block as well. Uh, a lot of people on four to ten acres don't even want to farm four to ten acres. You know, they're going to basically just have some pasture and maybe some animals on it and about a half an acre of garden and a whole bunch of trees. And they So this is something that is just going to have a, a, a hard time being handed off into the U.S. But the whole point of building these things this way with the wood in there, as it was brought over by Paul Wheaton, again, of permies.com uh, and richsoil.com, was that it reduces or eliminates the need for irrigation because this woody core sits there like a sponge and absorbs water, and then that way, when there's lots of water, most of it's retained, and it can slowly give it back to the plants over time. There was a big concern in this market that the wood would be a nitrogen thief and take up nitrogen, because you put carbon into any situation, which, you know, wood is mostly carbon, and there's a nitrogen environment, the nitrogen and the carbon combine to break down the carbon and to produce basically what we call compost. Well, it's true that the wood will take up some nitrogen, so you give it some supplemental nitrogen when you, bur you, know, you, when you bury it, uh, maybe a pound of blood and bone to a bed or something like that to help it out and get it moving along. You use wood that's already partially broken down. You kind of, But once the wood gets into that decayed state, it has this spongy nature, and that is what makes it work so well. I'm here to tell you guys I don't think that's the case. I think that's part of the story, but I think we're missing the big story with Google culture and woody beds and why they work so well. Um, what I've realized is everywhere that I've ever built a Google bed, especially when I've used wood that's already partially decayed, which I think is the best way to go. Not really bad, nasty stuff you can pull apart, but when you pick it up, it's, you can tell it's past the, the, the I've dried out and good, I'm good for firewood stage. It's heading to the other side of that where it would be marginal as firewood. You know, you, you wouldn't really want it for firewood, but it would burn clean and okay. I think that's the perfect state for this stuff. And there's a lot of it laying on the ground all over the place where we don't have to cut anything down or use wood that would be good for building uh, or use wood that would be good for fuel. We can use wood that's past that stage, plenty of it to harvest, especially there within a year. And anything within two years, you find lots of mushrooms. And this has led a lot of people to ask me, well, can I inoculate the wood with, with mushroom spores and get mushrooms? You can, but I think if you want to cultivate mushrooms, just inoculating logs and doing them more conventionally makes more sense. But as I've studied soil and soil science over the past couple of years, and I've honestly become fascinated by it, and things like the legumes and how they share nitrogen and all of these different interrelationships of plants, what I have learned is that There needs to be a highway system in the soil for all of these interactions to take place. The carrot, even if planted next to, you know, the parsley, can only share so many things through direct root contact. But if they're close, there's all of this infrastructure that's built around them, and it's in the form of fungal hyphae. In fact, in a square meter of soil, good quality soil, Right, square meter in the ground of healthy soil, there's over 500 kilometers of fungal hyphae. So you're talking about a, you know, let's call it yards, right? A, a three foot by three foot by three foot cube of soil, 500 kilometers, which is what, like, I don't know, somewhere like 300-ish miles, 320, 300, so I don't know, right? Somewhere in that range. 
350. I don't know. They've done three. You know, get it that way. A yard, a square yard, 300 miles of fungal hyphae. Think of how far 300 miles is. And those are little white strings. That's actually the fungus. The, the mushrooms that pop up are the fruit. And healthy soil needs to have these mycorrhizal fungi and all of their little hyphae because that allows all of the nutrients that are in that soil to be absorbed. And when we have a plant that has all the nutrients that it needs, it's more resistant to drought. And when we have a fungal-based soil going all the way down to this woody core, that actually becomes an extension of the plant's root system. There are actually fungal hyphae that a plant will be in the ground, and the hyphae will literally attach to the root. I just read an article about this occurrence, and of course nothing about permaculture in it, nothing about hugaculture in it, but it's where you start to put the pieces together from different sources of information, and that's what we need to be doing, where the, the hyphae will actually attach itself to the root of the plant and become an extension of the root system, allowing the plant to access nutrient and moisture far deeper. And I think what makes the woody beds work so well, because you think about it, you can only hold so much water in that wood mass. There's only, I mean, if it's soil or wood or whatever, you can only hold so much there. And yet some of these systems, you can go 30 days, 40 days with no, no rain and no irrigation in relatively hot climates. I had to water in July and August this year. That was it. And I watered probably more than I needed to. In fact, I probably would have had better results if I would have watered less. Um, the only reason I started is the cucumbers got bitter in one of my beds, and I figured I might as well water them all. And when I started watering... Everything exploded. And I went, so that means I went, and I had crops in these beds from when I put them in, in July of last year. So I started planting them in about the end of August last year. Call it September 1. So from September 1st to May 31st, running from 2011 into 2012, I didn't put a drop of water on these six beds. And everything survived. If it didn't survive, it wasn't because it didn't get water. It was because a deer ate it or a dog laid on it or something like that. But it's the, the rapid deployment of the fungus-based structure of the soil. And when I pulled this soil up now, you could see little strings in it. And I think that is what's making you know American-style hugaculture or woody beds work so well. And it's why we shouldn't be afraid to irrigate them from time to time when the plants are under stress. If we can reduce our irrigation requirement by 80%, to me that's good enough. And I think Americans that are hearing about this from Paul, who's so big on, you don't have to irrigate, you don't have to irrigate. Yeah, Paul lives in Montana. Okay, I've been to where Paul lives. This topsoil is two feet deep and black. Okay, it, it, it doesn't get anywhere near as hot for anywhere near as long as it does down in the south. My soil is silica and sand and granite and rock. And the topsoil is an inch deep. And Paul will say, well, they've done it in the desert. I understand that. And I'm not saying you can't find plants that won't do it if you do everything right. What I'm saying is it may not be the plants you want to grow. And if you want to grow the plants you want to grow, a little bit of irrigation goes a long way. But I think we need to be looking with the whole hugu culture concept at much more about what it does to the structure of the soil than just being a wet reserve. And this makes sense to why one of our listeners said, well, I'm going to try it in a bucket, even though Jack said it wouldn't work. And Jack is wrong. Put a piece of, I think it was white birch or something, in the bottom of a five-gallon bucket. 
bucket, filled up another bucket with just soil, and the, the plants in the one with the little piece of wood in the bottom did better. Ah, we've changed the structure of the soil. You, uh, the bucket can only hold so much freaking water, right? The container can... We've changed the structure of the soil, and when we've done that, we've tra changed the nutrient up take of the plant. And those of you that have been kicking around the hugaculture idea, there you go. A lot of people keep worrying about termites, termites, termites. There's termites everywhere. Don't put a hugaculture bed uh, in the garden bed up against that abuts the foundation of your home. That would be foolish. Get it 20 feet away from the house. Don't worry about it. Uh, the other thing is you're probably less likely to track termites with uh, something with a foot of cover on top of it than the posts for your fence that you have anyway. The only time we ever had problems with termites in, uh, in the, uh, the house we had in Texas was when they, they actually got into the fence and they ate the fence and then they got up against the house where the, the fence post was against the house and then they came in the foundation and we had to have them locked down by an exterminator. So uh, I, I'd be more worried about your fence post up against your house if there would uh, than a hugaculture bed out in the middle of your backyard. Uh, but definitely give it a try if you've been kicking it around. Uh, I also think we need to really work on, as instructors and teachers I'm talking to now, so, you know, Bill at Midwest, uh, Skeeter, even though you don't like me, if anybody ever tells you that I, I mentioned you on the show, I, I like you even though you hate me because I like guns. Uh, in your, your courses, you need to be doing this. Uh, you know, uh, Ben Falk, you're doing this. I, I saw you. Uh, but I think a lot of who, uh, a lot of permaculture teachers are not teaching our youth enough reality. Uh, and there's a lot of naivety. Uh, what it makes me think of is there was this young girl up in Vermont, little blonde gal, probably 20-ish years old. Could have been 19 for all I know. Great to have, you know, these kids that are excited and showing up and, and wanting to do things and save the world and all that. But like, you know, we cut a tree down and she goes, is that like a tenth of a cord then? And it was like one, you know, uh, red maple that was probably about four inches in diameter. And it wasn't like anybody wanted to pick on or anything, but it's like, okay, you know, this is a little tiny pile of wood. This isn't even, this doesn't make a, a, a fingernail scratch in the soil at putting together a four by four by eight foot stack. And so you, you, I'm not picking on this person, right? Because there was plenty of other people there with the same type of naivety in different ways. But okay, so that person's thinking, well, we can just heat all of our homes in the north with wood but with no real understanding of what it would take to do that. And, and the reality is we can. You know, you can manage about an acre of wood lot to sustainably yield about one quart of wood a year. So with wood lots everywhere, with the right trees and practicing pollarding and coppicing and things like that, which is where you don't cut the whole tree down, you cut parts of it and let it grow back, and we'll let the simplified version work for today. We could... But it's going to take a lot more work than this individual thinks. And I've been to a lot of places where you know, permaculture, sustainable ag, etc. is being uh, taught. And our kids, and I, I call them kids, but they're young adults, think that we'll put up some solar panels, we'll burn some wood, and we'll plant some seeds, and everything will be great. And those are steps in the right direction, but they fall so far short of the reality of the work involved. You know, when I did my presentation, one of the questions was, how do we deal with the things like land access? There's a lot of us that want land and we can't get it. And basically what they're angling toward is, well, shouldn't somebody take land from the evil people and give it to the good people? And the answer is, hell no. 
That's 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 not a fair society, you know. And and you know, I'm sitting there with all these people that all have this common vision, that all live relatively close to each other, and I'm going, don't you guys see that you are your own solution? You know, if you guys all really think that this is the way to be, why don't you guys get together and, and you know, if you can figure out how to put enough resources together to commonly manage some land together, you know, maybe that's a solution. Or maybe it's you've got to, you know, change your, your viewpoint because you're not going to go buy a perfectly set up permaculture farm. You're going to have to work really hard for it. And they're sitting on this farm that, that Ben built out of absolutely, it was nothing when he moved from a house and uh, a treed hillside. And the money, the work, the effort, the vision that went into creating that and carving it out of nothing is phenomenal. And you want kids, you know, and I keep calling them kids, young adults, right? I don't want to disrespect anybody by calling you a kid when you're old enough to get shot because it ain't right. But when you, you start crossing that bridge into the 40s, 18, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds are kids. Now, the people with the most realistic view that I've seen at these events are what I call reformed hippies. Most of them are women. Most of them are, you know, in a situation where it seems like most of them are single and they're, they're formally married. A lot of them have lost their husbands. And they kind of came back to this thing after leaving it as part of that, you know, 60s hipster generation. And they left that crap behind. They have the vision from that group tempered with the reality of age, right? They've actually been, they've seen the real world and they know everything can't be fixed with a ma magic wand and a puff of a, of a freaking joint and, and a bang of a tambourine. That, that world is gone for them, but the concept that things can be better is still there and they are extremely educated. There was one lady in, um, in Vermont that I would say fit this description, you could go find a leaf anywhere in that thing and go, what is this? And she could tell you what it was, common name, Latin name, what it was used for, huge sorts of information and resource. And the schools out there that are teaching this stuff, you need to find as many of those people as possible, and you need to give them free seats in your courses and have them spend time with these kids. Because we've lost that multi-generational thing, and if we don't bring that into permaculture, you ain't got jack shit that's sustainable, buddy. And that, that needs to be brought back. Those people need to be sought out. They need to be on a freaking list, an access list. And you guys running design schools and stuff like that. When you run an event, you need two or three of those people sitting there for free, pay for their freaking food, pay for everything to get them there. They will make your freaking course. And they will help these children, which is what they really are in the grand scheme of things, understand because a person like me that's so harsh with things and says like, you know, you just got to grow the hell up, man. I'm not ready for that grandfatherly, grandmotherly thing yet. They are. We need that multi-generational thing. The other thing we though, though do need, and I saw it for the first time, really, really done well by Ben Falk at Whole Systems Design. Permaculture courses, I don't know if you need to add a week to them to make this happen, if you want to get the core curriculum in, or if you want to just stretch it the way Ben does, or whatever, or have people knock out you know, 40 hours of the academics on their own before they show up. But if it's going to be an on-site design school, we need hard skills brought in. And not just you're going to take a shovel and dig a little bit and put some stuff in. Give you some ideas of what I mean by this. At Ben's course, and I was only there for like probably a third of it, um, 
We didn't just pick berries. We picked them and we made them into preserves. We made them into syrup. We made them into medicines. We did that with herbs as well. They brought in a nutritionist who talked about how to design, you know, food inputs for, for health. Um, and that uh, something I've never seen. Brought a guy in who makes his entire living doing something very non-permaculture, cutting trees down, right? Why do you bring that guy in? Well, because he knows how to cut trees down. And while permaculture would not be for clear-cutting something uh, on, a, on a farm, uh, a permaculture concern, uh, or even just a basic homestead, isn't a chainsaw a valuable skill, uh, chainsaw use and maintenance a valuable skill to have? So that was there. Scything was there. We actually slaughtered uh, a flock of chickens. Uh, the reality that if you're raising animals for meat, here's what exists at the other side of it. And any student that was like, I don't want to do that, was free to not participate in it. And it, it was amazing that most of the people that you would have most assumed would have a problem with it didn't. In fact, I don't think anybody did that time around. He said the, the prior course, there were some people really upset and really angry about it. But this time around, you know, it didn't seem like that was the case at all. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And I think that that's, and I actually want to see the permaculture schools and workshops and stuff be less concerned about a permaculture design and more about teaching people how to actually do things and design things. The, the two need to come together. And I don't know if that means expansion of the curriculum. I don't know if that means, you know what, a person takes a design course once. But a skills course is something they'll come back to over and over again for new skills and extensions of it. And we need to focus on, and this is what I think gets lost in a lot of the kind of airy-fairy components of permaculture, hard skills. How to actually do these things. You know, to, to sweat a little bit, to cut. Uh, but the other side of it is, when I went to the, the Holzer seminar, I was there for three days where the students were basically used as unpaid labor. Uh, in fact, they were worse than unpaid labor. They paid to be there, and they were being used as labor. You know, three days of your students planting potatoes is abuse of your student body. That was the shittiest thing I've ever seen done to students in my life. Even the even the people that were like, oh, this is good. Like the third day, they're like, this is bullshit. And it was. You know, if you're going to do something on the scale that was done there, and as much as you were charging students to show up, you bring in some labor. You bring in some paid labor so the students can learn, but they're not, the, people didn't go there to spend three days in a row planting beans and seeds and corn and gooseberries, right? They went there to learn from somebody and it was not delivered. It was not delivered. It was not delivered. And I'll tell you what, as much as I love Holzer and as much as I love his work, I'll buy any book the man writes for the rest of his life. If he puts out a video, I'll get it. I wouldn't walk across the street for another Holzer seminar. He's an arrogant asshole. And he doesn't answer the questions that the students have. And those that are going to be running courses, you need to answer the questions your students have. And if you don't know, say you don't know. People respect I don't know. They don't respect a bunch of bullshit and still not having an answer. Uh, I'm sorry I ran it on that, but it kind of brought me back to the, the place. Uh, I just want to point, hard skills doesn't mean turning your workshop uh, into uh, I'm going to get all my work done for free by my students. You can get a lot of work done for free by students. It, it, there's really nothing wrong with that as long as you make it enjoyable and educational and it's not done to the extreme. When we went with Ben and he had a day where it was like a work day 
And one of the things students learned about was swelling. So he gets in his little track hoe and he starts cutting swales and the kids go in. Kids, I keep calling them that. There are plenty of people there older than me too. But the groups go in and start cleaning out all the excess rocks, leveling out the swales by hand, cleaning it up, and understanding the structure of the swale. But we broke into three groups and each group only played around with that component for like 30 minutes at the most. And then there was another one we went over and cleaned up some sheep pasture and put in some hoogle beds And I don't remember what the third one was. But those three groups were like, you know, it maybe lasted an hour and a half with a rotation of 30 minutes apiece. That actually taught them the hard skills, but then they moved on to something else. You're only there for a week or two or, or whatever, depending on the course. You, you want to get moved around. You want to feel like you've, now I can go home and do some of these things. I understand them. I can put them into a design and I know what's actually required. So that was a big thing for me. Um, I think that there is a huge missed opportunity right now in small-scale urban design. I think that there's a lot of people out there that fancy themselves. They want to become a permaculture consultant. The, the best thing that they could do is, you know, if they're going to live in a city or a small town or a suburb, is spend a year or two learning everything they can in their backyard and then go out and consult with people that want it done in backyards. There's a huge market there. I mean, if you think about it, if you're going to design farms, you're going to design the few places that are big enough to be a farm and enlightened enough to be interested in permaculture, and likely they don't really need you very much. Because if, if a person that's going to be managing 20 acres is open to permaculture, he's either going to hire a really great designer or do most of it on their own. Because they already know that's why they're doing it. The big problem with the farm market is they don't know. They're trying to do organic, and they're doing everything like commercial. They're just using different inputs. Instead of uh, ammonium nitrate that's derived from fossil fuels, they're using ammonia uh, or they're using nitrogen that's derived from chicken shit. That's the only difference. And if you look at an or most organic farms and a commercial farm growing the same crop side by side, you can't tell the difference by looking at them from a distance. They don't look any different. They're not designed any different. They don't operate any different. All that's controlled is there's no toxic substances used. And even that's debatable. And I'm not putting down organic. I'm just saying that that's the route that the natural farmer's going today. Um, and it's a long road to making these things shift. But when you get into urban design, you, you know, and I, when I say urban, I mean anything that's not really rural, even semi-rural subdivisions. And you can go in and say, this is the kind of system I could design for you. And the person goes, no. And you can go next door and go, this is the kind of system I can design for you. And they go, no. And, you know, if you need 10 no's to get one yes as a designer trying to sell your consulting services, well, you can get 10 no's in about 10 minutes. So that means you're 10 minutes from your first design job. And I think the urban aspects of permaculture, high intensity, the stuff that needs more maintenance, needs more care, can make use of the massive number of microclimates in the urban environment is massive. And I think if you really want to understand permaculture design, even if you want to do it at a big level, but if you really want to understand it, you have to look at being constrained by urban environments. And I think you're doing yourself a disservice If you really want to know more about this and you have not gotten Jeff Lawton's Urban Permaculture DVD yet. In fact, I would say, and I have every DVD he's ever put out, and if he puts out one tomorrow, I'll buy it the, the day I know about it. Um, but if you said, I want to get one, 
You know, is it the food forest? Is it the soils one? Is it would be the urban one? I want to, but I, Jack, I got 10 acres. Get the urban one. I mean, it is amazing looking at these different designs. What's being done specifically in Australia where this has been taken on more. And for those that are, you know, again, the consultants, designers, etc. Yeah, you can get the occasional big design job, you know, designing half a community or something like that or a whole farm. But the, the opportunity isn't urban. It really is because there are so many freaking lawns out there that could do with producing something edible. And, you know, I just think that if we start looking at places where it's been done, it's something that anybody looks at it goes, I'd want that. And let me tell you what you want to sell people. This is the business side of me coming out. You do not want to sell people what they need. Selling needs sucks. Selling needs get your ass kicked by every big major mega corporation in the world. What do people need? Telecommunication services. I, I know we don't think we need it, but in today's world, it's a need. It's seen as a need. It immediately becomes a commodity. You're going to go compete with AT&T and, and Sprint and Verizon, right? Okay, what do people need? Food. Now, I know we're talking about food. I don't mean that kind of food, right? I'm talking about general day-to-day slop that the average person eats. You think you can com- compete with General Mills and Nabisco and Kellogg's? You can't. You can't do it. You want to compete in food, you immediately have to switch to a want. Locally grown, all natural, organic, niche product, you know, lobster rolls from fresh flown in lobster from Maine on the beach in, in, in Los Angeles, right? I just saw a guy on Shark Tank pitching that idea. And their business is working. But you know what? When you sell somebody a lobster roll on the beach in LA, they're not selling to the need. You're selling that. I want that. You see? Right, So you don't want to sell in a needs marketplace because the needs marketplace is commodity-driven and, and, and dominated by major players. So there's a need for farming, right? but there's not a need in the mind of the average person yet for urban permaculture design, which makes it a want, which makes it an explosive growth market. And... You know, it, it, it's almost tempting to like move near an urban center and set up shop as an urban designer. Um, I just told somebody today that wanted me to consult for like a fairly large property up in Wisconsin. I really don't do that direct consulting kind of thing. I just, I don't have time for it, you know, and I don't have time to do this other thing either. But if I was going to do it, and I'm not, but if I was going to do it, that's how I would do it. I would go for the small scale urban market. And I think that that, so like, so you're going, I don't give a shit, Jack, because, you know, I'm a software engineer and I like it. And I, what does that mean for me? It means do your yard for yourself. It means don't over, like, the, this is for all of you out there that are going, someday I'm going to have enough money and I'm going to have like five acres and I'm going to live out in the country. Great. Go nuts where you're at while you're here, though. And, and I'm telling you, man, you're going to look at this DVD, it's like 30 bucks, and you're going to look at the shipping, and it's like 10 or 12 or something, because that's to come from Australia. They don't have a U.S. distributor. Um, and then even though it says it's region-free, it's not going to work in your DVD player. You're going to have to watch it on your computer uh, with, like, Windows Media Player, or if you have a region-free DVD player, it'll work in there. And, and you're like, i got to pay that much money for this, and blah. You know, I'm telling you, if you are dealing with small spaces or even big spaces and want to understand them better... Get this freaking DVD. It is the best thing I've ever seen on permaculture in my life. 
and I have ingested anything anybody will put out, including some products that you've never heard about because I've looked at them and gone, well, that was crap. And that was you know, a waste of 60 minutes of my life I'll never get back. But if it's got Mollison's or Lawton's name on it, I'm buying. And I'm buying the day they put it out. I've never been disappointed. And the creme de la creme is the Urban Permaculture DVD. It will Your mind will explode with ideas for what you can do wherever you're at. It really will. It makes people in rural environments almost envious of people in like community environments. That's that's how well done it is. Um, let's kind of move into some other realms, though. Um, I got a comment from somebody the other day. I put out a, a, a playlist of a series from the British Broadcasting uh, Company, BBC, called Wartime Farm. Uh, where these these three historians occupy this farm in uh, Shropshire, I think, in England, and they basically farm the way that people did during World War II. And this person was like, I love and hate this, because you've got me on the permaculture, which I love, and this series is amazing, and I'm learning so much from it, but I'm watching them use uh, you know this thing called a mole to drain a, a flooded field so they can put in uh, grain. And the, see, the thing is that as soon as you start talking about permaculture, people think that like wheat, rice, corn, all these broad acre crops are just out. And they're not. They're not. Um, permaculturists say they don't practice monocropping. Uh, and this is, leads to a whole level of confusion by people. How could ever you d ever do this on a large scale? But monocropping is not a few acres of corn. Even a few acres. That's not monocropping. Not if it's surrounded with massive diversity, and not if it's like, say, three acres of corn, uh, but broken into smaller pieces, maybe a half acre a piece with all different things growing in between them, and maybe pumpkin growing in the corn. It's a very traditional thing, not necessarily exclusive to permaculture. That's, that's kind of like a clumpy polyculture. Monoculture is when you drive through these big ag areas, and you see a literal sea of soybean as far as you can see to the horizon. And then next year when you come back, it'll be the exact same except now it's corn. And you drive, you know, a couple hundred miles and now you find a sea of wheat. And it's nothing but wheat. Or that's, that's monoculture, right? A, a 40 acre farm producing 10 acres of it into a grain as their broad acre zone three. Uh, and then the rest of it growing, uh, this, this kind of polyculture thing, not the way I'd lay it out, but I wouldn't say it's not permaculture. Does it take responsibility for themselves and that of their children? Is it sustainable? Does it care for the earth? Does it care for people? And are you reinvesting the surplus back into the systems? Yes? Done! So that's if you let that go, that solves a lot of the problems. And we don't have to hate wheat. And rice. The reason there's such an anti-wheat, anti-rice, anti-bean vibe in permaculture is it's been done to this level of stupidity. Where there's nothing left. Look, I'm paleo, right, in my diet. Which means I eat very little starch and, and grain and things like that. But I like a loaf of bread once in a while. I prefer that it be an older variety of stone ground wheat. I still don't think it's great for my insulin levels and my blood sugar, but I like it. And you're not going to get it unless you grow some wheat somewhere. And there's a market for wheat. 
And if you read Permaculture One, which is the original book, right? The first book that Mollison put out with Holgram acting as his research assistant, the first chapter says that there's a need for mainstream agricultural land, that it's not being done right, there's too much use of chemicals, etc., etc., but that there's a, there is land that's ideally suited for this, there's a need for this type of, uh, of production, and that permaculture is not designed to replace it, but to augment it and to improve it. So we don't have to hate grain fields. We just have to hate 50,000 acres of grain, because there's no good that comes from that. It is not sustainable. It absolutely is not sustainable. And those systems are rapidly depleting the very thing that's sustaining them. And the only thing that's keeping them going now are the artificial inputs. And time and time again, you see places where that starts to wear out. And then you see no resiliency to drought in some of these, these places. And you'll get less of it and less of it. Because that fungal hyphae I talked about, it's dead. You've killed it. It cannot function in a saturated, chemical-based environment where all you do is plow and plant, plow and plant, plow and plant, right? You're killing the, the, the fungi, the, the microbes, uh, the bacterium, all of the things necessary for soil life is dead in these soils. So wheat, not evil. 50,000 acres of wheat, evil. It's something that, like, I knew that, but I didn't realize it until this year, and I got so many emails about it, and this one comment just brought it to the surface recently, how many people get that impression. So let that go. Um, I also get this question. Well, how can you practice permaculture on a large scale in a farm with all this polyculture? How would you harvest things if you can't use equipment? Okay, see, here's the first thing that most people don't realize. Every tomato that you eat has probably been picked by human hands. The same with most of your carrots. Um, very few crops are harvested mechanically. Very few. They are the broad acre crops. They are the corn, the wheat, the soy, etc. So if I plant a polycultured system that has carrots growing with lettuce, somebody has to go through and cut the lettuce. And somebody has to go through and pull the carrots. Because they're in the same space occupancy, doesn't really change anything. It just spreads my harvest out over a longer period of time, creates more variety, more diversity for me to take product to market. So it's, 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 it's positively great. And the bigger the operation, the more that's the case. But let's say you say like, okay, you know, Jack, one of the things I like want to specialize in with my operation is chili peppers. I want to grow Anaheims. I want to grow jalapenos. I want to grow serranos. Maybe there's like four or five mainstream peppers you want to grow. And I want to have them in rows. I want them to be easy to harvest. I want basically two by two going down a couple hundred feet, and I want another row of this one and another row of that one, and, another, and, and I can't do permaculture that way because I want the ease of harvest. This is what I need for production. Who the hell says that's not permaculture? Now, if you, if you take 10 acres and turn it into nothing but chili peppers, it ain't permaculture, and it ain't going to function as well as it could. But if those rows are interplanted with herbs and flowers and things, and I don't even mean in the same row. I just mean there's like separation Right, And that's good because it brings in your pollinators, it brings in your predators. Uh, it also helps for saving seed with different varieties, create separations. Right, There's no reason you can't have this clumpy structure with the clumps being dominant by a particular species. There's no reason you can't take polyculture to a higher level. But it's all, again, how does an architect design a building? Where's the building going? What is the goal? Who's going to be in the building? 
Is it going to be a business in the building or is it going to be a family in a house? Is it going to be a multi-tenant building? Is it going to be a multi-tenant commercial structure? Is it supposed to be tall? What is the right? So the architect will take all their knowledge and skills of design and will design the building to meet the needs that it has. The permaculturist will say, I'm not going to harm the earth. I'm not going to harm people. I'm going to return my surplus. I'm going to take personal responsibility here. And I'm going to look at all of the wonderful things that exist in the permaculture world, from herb spirals to broad acre uh, plantings of amaranth. And everything in between, the chickens and ducks to tilapia ponds, whatever it is. And I'm not going to put it all here. I'm going to pick and choose. And the way Lawton describes it, it's like having a wardrobe. Right? I have to put on clothes I never wear very, very soon. I'm going to Austin. My best friend from the Army is getting married. If it was anybody else, I'd probably say, dude, I can't go to Austin for a wedding. But for him, I'll go. And I'll be wearing very nice dress clothing. I'll pull it out of my wardrobe and I'll put it on because it's proper for the event. And my wife goes, I like dressing up like this. And I'm like, well, don't get used to it. Because I don't. That's not me. I dress in jeans or jean shorts uh, and a t-shirt, right? Most of you guys have seen me uh, in public. No, I, I, you know, and you see me in videos. I'm the same all the time. This is how I'm comfortable. But I have other items in my wardrobe. I live in the South, so I don't worry about freezing to death very often, but it was actually quite chilly today, so out came the uh, line Carhartt jacket. Right? So with a permaculture solution, we have all of these designs and techniques and recipes and knowledge of interplannings and, and then we take the geography, the season, the goal, and we combine that. But don't think you couldn't have a permaculture farm with, you know, growing an acre of corn. You just aren't going to grow all corn. And I think it's important that we get that because we can't meet the need at the larger scale if we try to make everything into a garden. There's the garden aspect, the zone one. You know, what we would call a garden in a typical American backyard is the zone one, zone two-ish nature of permaculture. When you get out into these larger systems of production, we're into our zone three. And then we're using livestock in between them. So... Understand, yeah, we can do this at the commercial level on a large scale. What do I think the, the, the future for permaculture, though, is? I want to divide into the individual and commercial scale. I think the big growth in permaculture in the next 10 to 20 years is at the individual level. There'll be parks, there'll be cities that get on board with it and do public parks in a permaculture way. There'll be communities that'll be put together that'll be a little bit larger. There'll be places like, I don't, I think it's California where the guy bought like a kind of a rundown house and fixed it up and then he bought the next door house. And when he bought the next door house, they left the fence up that fenced out the, the street, but they took the fence down and made one big yard out of it and rented the house. And it, basically they kept doing that until either somebody that was on board with it or uh, they owned it and a tenant was in every house on the block. So the whole normal block from the front of the streets looks normal. But when you walk out your back door, there's no fences between any of the houses. And there's a giant mulberry tree in the center with chickens around it. And everybody's kids play together and everybody, I mean, so there'll be people that do it that way. And there's people like me that go, that's really cool. I, I really dig what you're doing. And I would really love to visit and hang out with you guys, but I probably don't want to live that way full time. That's probably not for me. But see, that's the point. That permaculture doesn't dictate that just because somebody sets up a permaculture community, and it is permaculture, that that is the only thing that is, that we can all pick and choose. 
I want my four or five acres. I really do. I, I, I'll, I could settle for two or three, but I want to be left the hell alone. I don't want anybody telling me I don't like the fact that you have a goat or whatever. And when you get out into that five-acre range, generally you get into a point where you can create enough separation uh, from your neighbors and, and do enough with tree-line planting and all that they just leave you the hell alone. So for me, it's I love community, but finding a community that won't bitch about things like a chicken is is difficult. So my solution is let's get close to community, but have a rural experience, and that's okay. And if you want to move out in the wilderness of Montana and put in a true homestead on the side of a mountain and put a permaculture system in there, you can do that. And this is why I think the growth is in the individual level. Because the individual level allows for permaculture to show what it truly is. Again, a wardrobe that we pick and choose from to design to the individual concern. right? And that is wonderful. And I think the biggest growth, though, again, I won't go into it too much, is at that suburban level. about Because at least with you know, a six-foot privacy fence, uh, you can do a lot and be left the hell alone, even in suburbia. It's the front yards where you run into problems. Yeah, there's people that bitch about chickens and stuff like that, and you know, but there's a lot of places where people don't. So it's all about figuring out how to make whatever is available where the person is work work for them. A lot of people that can't have chickens can easily have rabbits. You know, they, they can eat. And if, if somebody shows up and goes, "What's with the rabbits? They're my pets." Right? I mean, it's it, you know, just, here's the other thing I think a lot of us need to learn in this kind of like um, this, this fight for liberty. Yeah, fight for liberty, but don't be stupid about it. You know, if um, if telling the people that show up the rabbits are your pets will make them go away and go tell your neighbor there's nothing you can do, uh, but saying, oh, should we raise them for meat would make them in your town considered livestock and then make you have a fight, just say they're pets and shut up. I mean, that's something that we need to, you know, and, and, and you know, skin your rabbits in your garage. You know, not out in the backyard hanging from your elm tree in the perfect window view of the neighbor that you know is going to complain, right? So that's just a little aside there because I've seen people that we've gotten on the side of to help out and support in legitimate situations. Uh, but I've also seen people that are legitimately antagonizing an attack just so that it'll be there. And I can understand why, but I don't think that it's the best idea if you want to be happy. But I think there's huge, huge growth in the permaculture field at the individual level. The commercial level, I, I think, is going to be a much more modest growth. Um, if you just look at hula culture, woody beds, whatever you want to call it, when it came to America, a lot of people that were already sold on natural gardening, natural growing, permaculture, were very skeptical. In fact, some of them, Jason Akers, are still skeptical, even though you've seen it work over and over and over and over and again. So quit being skeptical, since it works, right? Um, but if, if that group is skeptical about something as simple as burying some wood, because that's, that's all it, you take wood, you bury it in the ground. You, you talk about, we talk about adding organic matter to soil all the time. It's just another way to do that. If that group is skeptical, What about the typical farmer rancher, right? And I, they're being better approached with stealth permaculture, right? Um, there's a whole movement now in the cattle industry that's starting to catch fire with free range, where there's you're not feeding grain at all. 
The pastures are being managed with high-density, high-rotation periods. So that means the cattle are being forced into a very small area, you know, nowhere near the density or volume of a CAFO or anything like that, but a small area where you look and go, there's all that pasture. Why are these cattle fenced in with this electric fence to where they're not shoulder-to-shoulder, but they're in a, a herd? You know, and then the next day they go to the next paddock, and the next day the next paddock, and the next day the next paddock, and the next, and they go all the way around. It might take them, you know, a farmer, a rancher managing a certain area might take a hundred days or more before those cattle step foot on the same land again. And that is permaculture, and they're doing it because they haven't been bothered by the word because nobody's told them that's what it is. And that type of thing. We're seeing work done in the cattle industry as well. Well, what we're doing is people are going in and seeding more desirable seeds for pasture. And the grass that's already growing is being left in place. And they're just rolling it over, almost like a light-duty steamroller would do. And it just bends the existing grass. So it doesn't die immediately, but it's been disadvantaged and it becomes a mulch layer for the more desirable stuff that's growing up. Permaculture. But no one's going in and explaining, you need to do permaculture. So these natural techniques are being taken in and I think the place they have the biggest impact that can be seen quickly is in livestock production versus mainstream agricultural production of corn and beans and soy and stuff like that. Because the guy growing soy one rotation and, and 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 corn the next, how wants to know how many you know how many tons per acre? And if you do permaculture, it's not all going to be corn and beans, so there's going to be less tons of corn and beans per acre. You have to think total yield. And ranchers in general are better about total yield than farmers. Because if I can grow beef, that's great. But if I can add, you know, uh, hogs and I don't have to take away that much beef to add hogs and my total yield goes up, even though I'm kind of a beef guy, I'll add the pork production if I can do it. Because I, I'm thinking more about total yield and I don't really, you know, have to focus so much and I can start to see how these two animals can counterplay with each other. The other thing is you're not fighting at anywhere near the level the concepts with the Monsanto GMOs and government subsidies combined together. There's a lot of that in ranching and beef and poultry production and the way chicken is produced in the mainstream in this country is a horror into itself. But it's easier for a person to go out with a few acres and set up a, a, a company producing broiler chickens and sell them for three times market rate and break even within their first season and start making a profit than it ever has been for somebody to go out and grow organic corn and do that. So... There's just more opportunity there to move that toward the natural. The interesting thing, though, is how much of the corn and beans and soy and all go, even in these natural production systems, to supplemental feed for the livestock. And if you flip enough of the livestock, eventually they say, I don't want that. I don't want to feed the supplemental chicken feed. I don't want GMO soy in it. I don't want GMO corn in it. I don't, I don't want that. So that starts to create a demand pull 
to get rid of some of this crap. So I think the commercial future is a lot longer of a time scale, and unfortunately it may be too long for what we really need to accomplish, but it is a reality. But the first thing farmers have to do if they want to transition to a more profitable model is stop taking subsidies. I, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but you know the 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 profit per acre has been driven down to shit because of the subsidies, right? And and it really has. And the smart thing for the farmer with a thousand acres to do would be to take 10% of his land and begin to develop it in a permaculture model until it sustains and profits itself and then to do 10% more. And then it might even be, with that big of a parcel, 50 acres, so 5%. And it might be 5% increments. And th th what happened, though, is it would snowball. The first piece would take a long time to really ramp up. Unless you go animal production is your main main goal. And then you bring up your other 5%. You bring that 5% up mainly to produce long-term fodder crops for your animals. Start putting perennial production that supports the animals and move the animals into that 100 acres and phase that in. And what you would watch is as you got into the next 10%, the next 10%, you go into the 20, 30 percentiles, it would snowball just like a debt snowball. And speed up to where the guy'd go. I, by the time you're halfway done with it, the half of the land that's done would be making you more money than the entire really, of the land did in the past. Where you'd actually be better off just taking the other half of the land and putting it into forest as a long-term timber crop and overstory food crop for your livestock, and, and you'd be done. And, and that's that's the future. But I think that for people to start getting a vision, a 20-year vision of land management is going to take, it, it, unfortunately, it's going to take an acute dose of reality that's probably going to hurt a lot of people before we understand it. Um, those of us that are saying it are like a voice crying in the night right now that the people that have the control over those systems don't want to hear. Because all I can think about is making the mortgage and the payments on the combine this year. And I understand why they feel that way. But I bet you there's an opportunity there for the right person to go out and start converting some of these commercial concerns. And it's probably starting off at the 100 to 5 acre commercial concern. It's probably not the 1,000 acre, 5,000 acre concerns. It's probably too much. And it's, it might even be more likely the 40 and 50 acre concerns. Because if you can go into a 40 acre farm that's making enough money to pay the bills... And you can take two acres of it and transform it over a couple of years for that person. And that takes patience and takes resources on, on, on the part of the designer and the educator. Then you can kind of like, and then once that farm is converted, other 40-acre concerns go, I like what's going on there. How do I do that? That's how you sell it in the marketplace of ideas, but it's a very long timeline sale. Um, I also think that when we look at that for... Families, I'm becoming more and more in love, honestly, with the one-acre farm. I think the one-acre farm is the future of small farms. And the one-acre farm is never going to really produce a big profit. It might produce a little small. You know, you could have a one-acre farm and a greenhouse and sell plants and make, you know, $5,000 a year in supplemental income. You know, and you could produce, you know, 100 broiler chickens and sell 50 and keep 50. And make some money on that too. I mean, you could do that on an acre, but 
it's probably not really the the you know you'd probably do one or the other. And if you had two acres, you could really do the you know hundred broiler chickens or something like that. Um, but it's not really necessary, and it's not what I say. The future of farms. It's not really what I mean. When I say the future of farming, I mean the farm that is the family farm. It's truly a family farm. That the production of the food is for the people living there and immediate family relations and community members around it. That it's the place that you know Uncle Joe has it. And and you know his brother still lives close, but closer to the city. And you know the kids come out, and the kids play, the cousins play together, and they work the land together, and they start feeding their their own family again. And, and the acre has so much potential. I mean, the acre we can put in two tenths of an acre of chicken paddocks, and we can run a little small flock of meat birds and our layer hens. We can put a tenth of an acre pond in. Uh, we can run quite a bit of fish out of a tenth of an acre. We have supplemental water. We can keep that thing topped off with roof water runoff. We can put a couple smaller ponds in for predator habitat. We can put a fence around an acre without going broke. We can put a dog inside that fence that deals with one leg or two legged and four legged predators. One legged predators. <laughs> you know, if a bad guy comes after you, the one legged bad guy without a prosthesis, you're probably your best bet. Uh, at least you could outrun him. But you, you get my point. Like, there's so much to managing an acre for the family that has a job. Their dad still goes to work, mom still goes to work, kids are playing soccer in school, and are still. But that acre gives this ability to to really go in and produce a lot. Uh, I think most people, if you put in, you know, a vegetable garden of a twentieth of an acre, would be shocked at how much you could produce out of that. You could even have you now you got room for some broad acre stuff. Right, you can go in and you can put in a few hundred square feet or three, four hundred square feet of corn, if you like corn and grow something that's you know suitable to your environment. And maybe you know, I look at it this way: you could you could do whatever you want, you just can't do everything you want, but you can probably do more than you can handle. And I think the acre, and honestly, I want five acres so that I can really manage two and create three into this kind of. Wooded buffer, leave me the hell alone. Don't bother me and bitch about my chicken house zone, right? You know, I mean, I would prefer if I had a five-acre property that if I could find one already that had a tree perimeter around it was three or four trees deep, and then it was open in the center so that you really don't see in. That would be perfect because then I can be left the hell alone, and that's really what I want. So. What you either have to find is a place where people are already doing things the way that you like, or there's there's nothing they can really do about it because there's no ordinances or no HOAs or anything like that, or that you have just freedom because you're rural enough to do it. But a lot of people don't care to go that far. There's a lot of people listen to the show and go, you know, chickens are cool. I don't want a chicken. I don't want to mess with it. I, but I want to, you know, and, and they there's places for everybody, so to speak. But I think that the full working acre is the future of small farming. Small family farms producing for themselves. And that's a working acre. So it might be two acres of land, but it's a working acre. Um, I think that's really where it is. Um, and then I do want to talk a little bit about animals and who are you know what animals are the best bets for working families. So you do have to leave the farm or the little homestead or the suburban homestead or whatever and go work every day and come back. And I think the two best ones 
I'd say three are probably rabbits, chickens, and ducks. And of the three, if you have the space for them and nobody's going to bitch about them, the most self-sufficient is the duck. The duck is happy. Ducks are the happiest birds I've ever seen in my life. They don't really care. They can always seem to find something to take care of themselves with. You don't have to feed them a lot. They lay eggs. You got, there's breeds that lay every bit as effectively and consistently as chickens. To me, they're actually a better tasting egg. It's actually easier to go ahead and let a, a, a hen bring up a, 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 you know, a flock of, of chicks and raise some chicks for meat to me. It's way easier to do than chickens. I think chickens are pretty easy to raise for meat if you go buy, you know, the, the, the chicks. But when it comes to raising your own, it's a little bit more effort, a little bit more work, a little bit more likely to have some of them die. Baby ducks, I mean, if you go to any city park that has Muscovy ducks in the spring, you see tons of flocks of them. They have very little protection. You know, generally the population control in those places are the turtles that eat the baby ducks. And if it wasn't for that, there'd be more ducks there than you knew what to do with. I assume you're not going to allow those things to take over your property. So I think that they're the most self-sufficient animal. The most productive animal for meat is going to be rabbits. You know, two does and a buck can probably produce more meat than raising a couple goats for meat every year. Um, the, uh, a, a, a female rabbit... Uh, running a couple litters a year should be able to produce 40 to 80 pounds of meat. That's a lot of meat. And that's high quality meat. They're going to need more inputs. Um, you're probably not going to have them free ranging or even around a yard. Maybe there's times you can put them out and watch them. But usually they're going to be kept in hutches, especially for that level of production. And that means that even if you're growing a lot of the food they're eating, you're going to have to pick it and bring it to them. Uh, where the ducks, you can just kind of let them out, and they'll go do their thing, and 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 you know, back in their duck house every night, and if you give them a little pond, they're happy. But you'll never get the level of meat production that you will from just a few rabbits. Chickens, you got eggs, you got manure. They're a great working animal as long as you control where they go. But they need a little more maintenance than a duck does. Those, to me, are your big ones. And your best bet, your best bet overall for meat production is fish. Um, if you live anywhere where it's warm enough to grow tilapia to harvest size, right? And with a, with a small pond, like let's say 500 acres with a little bit of supplemental heating, you can extend that time period. And I think that's 500, did I say 500, 500 gallons, right? A 500 gallon garden pond just doesn't take up that much space, you know? It's certainly not even a full tenth of an acre, right? So one acre working, but I mean, I'm talking, you know, something that's as big as the average room. Um, and you, you know, if you really want to be self-sufficient with it, you get yourself some tilapia you keep in a fish tank, and you keep your males and females separated with a divider, you allow them to breed whenever you need fry, you introduce your fry into your pond outside, if you're really smart, you do a hybrid breed so that your young don't reproduce in the pond, so that they don't overpopulate, and... That's pretty much, you can get a deer feeder, set it on low so it doesn't throw the food too far, put some food in the deer feeder, set a timer over top of your pond, set it low enough against it because the deer feeders throw them really, really far, and it will feed twice a day or three, whatever frequency you want, whatever volume you want, and you just 
harvest them when needed. And to me, that's easier than uh, aquaponics or anything like that. So those are my four, especially for urban production. Chickens, ducks, rabbits, and fish. And I think fish is the one. No one's going to bitch about fish. No neighbor will even know. You don't have to tell. They'll think you have koi. Right, and then when you fillet them, then they see you out there cutting them up or whatever. If they complain, by the time somebody shows up, you're like, "What fish?" Because they're all done for the year, right? Um, and, and the one thing to worry about in your, you know, cooler climates is if that water hits a certain temperature, those fish are going to die. So you need to know your window for that. So that may not work up north, but there's other fish that you can grow. Tilapia are just as far as growing fast. And ease of reproduction, especially providing your own fry, they're probably the best one out there. But you can do trout, you can do sunfish, uh, you can do anything. Careful, in some places if they're a game fish, um, you would have a problem taking them from the wild and doing this with them. Some places not so much, check your local laws, stay legal, or at least stay, you know, not advertising the fact that you're growing, you know, game fish in your backyard. Uh, with that, I think I've got everything wrapped up today. Hopefully, this was an interesting and fun show today for you guys. Uh, hopefully, those of you that are dealing with Sandy, that it, and you're not dealing with it at a catastrophic level, but just kind of an unhappy level, maybe it gave you some ideas and hope for rebuilding, because we will clean this mess up like we always do, and we will go on. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
solution. 